This is Livin' the Breed with Fox News Chief Legal Correspondent, Shannon Breen. I am very excited to welcome to Live in the Bream today, Lauren Green, who you will know and love as our chief religion correspondent at Fox News, among many other things. You're uh-huh. a multi-talented and you're a very busy lady. Uh, welcome. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here. Tell us a little bit about your history of Fox because it runs deep and about what you're doing now. Oh, my goodness. It runs very, very deep. And actually, you, do you know I'm like the first on-air person hired original. for Fox News Channel? And they're so original. Yeah. And when I came here in uh, 1996, August 5th was my start date. Wow. And we did the uh, the pilot newscast. Uh, me and uh, Marvin Himmelfarb, who was the producer of the newscast, and we had a plywood desk and one solitary camera just looking at me. No prompter. And, uh, <laughs> Which is he, always fun for it's live TV. It's always fun. So you get a little practice in that way. And then we just did newscasts just to see how it would roll. And I think they were looking at graphics and a bunch of other stuff. And then we moved over to a, a temporary studio called Unitel and as people were hired. And then they had a whole staff of producers trying to see, could we do a newscast? every half hour and that's the way they they programmed it they had a newscast every half hour which was seven minutes and so they were working really hard trying to create this seven minute newscast every half hour I mean you are somebody who laid down the framework for what millions of people try to emulate now with cable news and these you know we've got a 24 hour news cycle I mean you were really there when this was blowing up on the scene it was rough though in the beginning and I don't want to it's not my I don't want to take the credit for all of this because you know the, the wonderful people the managers um, you know, uh, Roger Ailes and Chuck Collier, um, mm-hmm. all of these people were there in the beginning trying to make this work. And so um, I was just a, a lowly pawn in the <laughs> scheme of everything that was now. going on. Yeah. Um, so uh, tell us about your current role, how you morphed into doing that, and kind of what the subject matter means to you. Well, one of the things that's very interesting, too, is that before... Um, for the most part, I was working, I was doing the news cut-ins for Fox and Friends for a number of years. And um, I always had an interest in in, in religion uh, because of my music background. I have a degree in music. And when you study music um, as a degree, you also study church history. So you study a lot of doctrine. You know, one person said to me, the history of the Catholic Church really is a history of the beginning of music because they, they parallel a lot. So much of the early Western diatonic music is based in the church. So I always had an interest in it, um, both uh, professionally and personally. And I read a book by Ravi Zacharias called Can Man Live Without God? And I was so taken by this book. I mean, I was reading other books as well, but this book really spoke to me because it seemed to really reflect on today's situation. And I and I kind of formed a sort of a proposal for um, a special, and I brought it to um, Mr. Ailes, and I said, you know, we should do something on this. And so we did. And that was the first um, thing I did on religion at Fox News Channel. And then they were making changes in the programming um, and the of the of Fox uh, Fox and Friends in the morning, and they said, you know, would you like this job of, of religion correspondent? And I said, yeah, I guess it fits me because mm-hmm. that's really what my interest was, and so that's really how it began. Well, and along the way, you've done so many things. You mentioned your music. Uh, you had your own project out. And I always hesitate now to call them albums, CDs. CDs. Like kids these days, know. I don't know what you call them. But you've had your own project out. Uh, you're very gifted. I've heard you oh, play. Oh, thank you so much. And um, I mean, that's such an, uh, an interesting, important part of your life. I mean, it really impacts the way that you see the world. And it's so artistic. And that says a lot about your nature and your personality. Well, you know, because you said 
that's how you see the world. It's part of your nature. But you as a musician know the mm-hmm. same thing because I always call music my first love. It mm-hmm. really is how I respond to the world. Even when before I even took piano lessons, I remember as a child listening to certain sounds on TV commercials. And there were certain sounds that I really, really did just love. Uh, before that, my mother would play the piano. And, I, of course, I would play the uh, treble area thinking mm-hmm. I was matching her perfectly. Um, I don't know why I thought <laughs> It sounded that. beautiful, It I'm sounded sure. beautiful. And she thought, well, she's not crying, so let's just, just let her do this. Um, but, so music really is the first thing that helps me understand the world. And as a musician, I study music, have a degree in music, and giving recitals. And I thought I was going to be this concert pianist. Oh, um, I did too for about five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then reality hits. And then it's just that... Um, Music is how I understood the world. I developed most of my um, complex thinking through Mm -hmm. music, through playing music. And so when I transferred to journalism, when I began to learn how to write and try to learn how to write, I I had this frustration because I knew what I wanted to say, but I couldn't find the words. It's like you're trying to translate from one language Mm -hmm. to another. It is... An interesting phenomenon because I understand now how people who are learning a new language, mm-hmm. um, under, you know, are frustrated, right. and that's how I felt trying to grasp what I wanted to say, how I wanted to say it. I had the exact nuance of what I wanted to say, but couldn't find the mm-hmm. words. That is such a, a descriptive, perfect way to me to put it, because there are times when, I'm sure you do this too, when you're experiencing an emotion and you sit down at the keyboard, whether it's joy or despair, whatever it is, to me, getting it out on the keyboard Absolutely. is a communication and a release of it uh, in a way that is tough for me sometimes to find the words Right. That fit. You can always find the music. You know, it's like, okay, what mood am I in today? Okay, it's a rock monograph. I'm always in a rock monograph. Enough mood anyway. <laughs> Are you? Oh, absolutely. Rachmaninoff is it. And then there are some times when I'm in more of a, a Beethoven mood, but but a, a specific kind of Beethoven. Yes. You know, there is a wonderful piece of that that was background music for um, the BBC production of Pride and Prejudice. Of mm-hmm. course, you know, and it was like, oh, that's the mood. And one of one of the instructors I had told me is like, you know, Rachmaninoff is music says. Um, this is who I am. I'm telling you about me. Beethoven's music is more like, I'm telling you about somebody else. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there's a dis- there's a there's a disconnect. So that there's a little more stayed, a little more ordered. Uh, and then Rachmaninoff is just like, let's just spill my guts all over the place. Love it. You know what mood I'm never in? Bach. Because that feels like way oh too much goodness, work. Oh my goodness, I love Bach. <laughs> Bach is really, now Bach, I talk about it in the book, because Bach is one of the Baroque composers that really started to order um, the Western diatonic system. And his well-tempered clavier is an example of that, because before that, the um, music was, um, well, the, music is based on the overtone series, basically. Mm-hmm. And so the music is, it's not exact as you get towards the upper range. And so what Bach and the contemporaries in the Baroque period and before tempered the scale so each one is a half a step apart, mm-hmm. right? And so what they basically did is harness the power of the dominant tonic relationship. And I know people's eyes are glazing over at this exactly. point. Because uh, it's like, what, what is what she talking <laughs> well, about? Well, I'll translate it this way. Bach is hard. Bach, to it, me, Bach is like doing exercises. It's it very precise. Is, so precise, but so powerful. Mm-hmm. Boy, I'll tell you. And the well-tempered clavier takes you through every key signature in mm-hmm. the circle of fifths. Every key signature that you can play in the Western Dianatonic system, Bach 
uh, has and, a has a prelude and fugue in that in that key. And I'm too lazy for that. Uh, you and I, though, we do share <laughs> we share um, uh, an experience and a history with Chopin. Um, you and I both, and we like to say both of us like to say this. Last century, we were both in the Miss America pageant, yes. not the same year, um, but both. Well, I had was that, before you. <laughs> not much, uh, but we both had that experience of I don't know about you, but I remember standing backstage when we'd done our opening number. So you got 50 young women out there, yeah. and they take you backstage. And uh, at least my year, what they did was they wouldn't let you go back to the dressing room because right. they know who the 10 finalists are, and they're right. moving their stuff into a special area right. where we're going to get right. ready. So you're stuck in this holding pen almost right. with the most nervous energy you're ever going to feel with these 50 young women. And I remember everybody saying, oh, I hope we make top 10. I hope, you know, everybody's so excited. And one of the chaperones we had looked at us and said, if you do, you'll get to perform for 80 million people. Oh, that's the last thing you want to hear. (laughs) And I said, I don't want to make top 10. (laughs) I did. (laughs) So you and I both, and you were a third runner up, Mm -hmm. I think, to Miss America. So we both had a chance to play live on national television. Did you love it or were you terrified? Because I was terrified. Um, I was terrified, but not as terrified as I was when I played um, for the preliminary rounds. So I played oh. it better for the next round. Oh, good for you. Um, so I was, I mean, I, it's, it's a place you've, I've played forever and ever and ever. And then, of course, you get in front of people and Ooh. all of a sudden you don't, it's, you don't even know where it's your, what, it feels what so your fingers. Unfamiliar. It's like, what is this piece? And where are these notes? And what key is that? And what, oh my gosh, I don't even know how to play piano. How am I sure? Right. Well, how did I get here? Do I, you still have nightmares about it? Because I absolutely. do. Once in a while, I'll have a dream that I'm back at Miss America. I don't know my piece. I don't have anything prepared. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like, that must have been one of the most terrifying well, moments of my life because I keep going back to it. Mine was in 1980 something 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 and what I my nightmare is can they tell I'm not 25 anymore? Right. How did I sneak in here? What am I doing here? I'm going to get busted. They're going to find like, out I'm married. They're going to they're going to like okay Oh, okay. She looks a little older than the rest, but maybe, you know, <laughs> so I, weird. maybe mature. <laughs> I have the same exact dream. Like, I'm going to get busted for being yeah. here, but hey, they haven't kicked me out yet, so I'm right. going to go through with the competition. They'll soon find out that, yeah, I'm a 40 something And what if I don't woman. do as well as they did before? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my God. Okay, you know what? It's so good to know that former Miss America <laughs> contestants have the same nightmares. Uh, okay, but that's a nightmare. But what's a dream is this new book that you have I want to talk about this called Lighthouse Faith, God as a Living Reality in a World Immersed in Fog. And right now people feel like if ever our world has been immersed in fog, it's a yeah. tough world out there domestically. Um, internationally, there's so many issues going on, so much divisiveness oh, and real concerns that people have. Tell us about the book. Well, the book is on so many different levels, but the fact is the lighthouse is the metaphor because um, it's based on the idea that the first commandment of the ten, the first of the ten commandments, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me, sits atop the other commandments like a beacon of a lighthouse. And this is based on a sermon that I heard from a very, very powerful um, preacher named Dr. Timothy Keller, whose church I am a member of. And uh, he basically talked about the Ten Commandments and how they're structured and saying um, the Ten Commandments are not just an arbitrary list of do's and don'ts, but this is an actual description of who God is. And that's a powerful element anyway. And then he said that uh, we are... If we're made in the image of God, this is how we are naturally inclined to. This is what we, we will be to our fullest when we abide by those rules. Now, he also said that 
you can't break commandments two through ten without first violating number one. So all of the law really hinges on number one, and every law two through ten is defined first by its relationship to the first commandment and second by its relationship to everything else. So, for example, you can't commit adultery unless God is not... um, unless something else is more loving to you than God. You can't steal unless something else is worth more to you than God. You see you see how it works. Mm-hmm. And so all the law hinges on that first commandment, and that's how I look at the first commandment as standing like a beacon of a lighthouse. And, of course, the lighthouse has many more um, uh, images of, of safety and, 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 um, and, and comfort and hope. Um, um, as in a foggy world. Um, but there was another thing that I began to look at, and this is why I came through music, and you would all understand this, is that this, this structure of this Ten Commandments, you take it out of sort of its biblical moorings and look at it as a closed system of saying there's a seminal point and then everything in the system relates to it first before relating to everything else. And that sounded to me just like the major scale. The, mm-hmm. how music works. And then I started to see this sort of same structure in other things. And I realized, boy, if the minister's right, and this is a description of who God is, then God's template of law, his image is made over everything. And that was powerful to me. Mm-hmm. But we also talk about religion. You talk about why there's so much tumult, why there's so much conflict in the world. And one of the things people always say to me, when I, they know I'm a religion correspondent uh, at you know parties, and because you know we, we live in a basically a secular world, they said, "Well, I think religion is very divisive. I think religion is mm-hmm. the problems in the world." And I said, "Well, you know." Religion is really kind of the red herring. You know what the real problem in the world is? Is sin. And that's common to every person. But people don't want to hear that. I mean, no. that's, a, that's a concept that people say, oh, you're preachy, you're churchy. And uh, uh, nobody, I mean, uh, from where I come from, probably the same right, place as right. you, I, I know I sin every day. I need forgiveness and right. I'm thankful for it. And and so I'm willing to embrace the fact that I'm a sinner. Uh, but a lot of people, that that's an offensive thing. You say that and they think, well, not me. Right. Well, see, the problem is, is that people don't understand the, the, the d- definition of sin. And the, from the biblical standpoint, what sin is, is putting yourself in the place of God. And that's less offensive than saying um, you're a bad person. Mm -hmm. You see, that's how people look at sin. They think, oh, you think I'm a sinner? I'm like those people in jail. I'm like the guy who, you know, beats his kid. I said, no, Mm -hmm. no, no, no. Sin is putting yourself in the place of God, which means that even good things can become bad things to you Mm -hmm. if that becomes your fundamental trust. Right, your priority. Mm -hmm. That, I think, and that's the point between God as a concept and God as a living reality. And that's why the title includes um, God as a living reality, Mm -hmm. because a concept is something that you certainly believe in. It is something that um, you use to better your life. It's like a credit card. It's like a gym membership. It's like a great dress or a wonderful purse. Um, God as a once a week kind of checking in is a concept. You know, you're still in control. See, that's what sin is. You're still in control. God as a concept is a sinful kind of process. But God as a living reality means there is an objective truth that exists outside of you or me, you know, that is there, whether I believe in it or not, an objective truth to which I must mold my life. Mm-hmm. And that's how the book is kind of structured. How can we see God in the everyday if that is the way? Um, and, it, and, it, and it occurred to me that if there is an objective reality, then it should be not just a spiritual reality, but it should also be reflective in, the, in, the, in, a, in a physical sense as well. And that's why I use the three 
areas of the Trinity, saying Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and breaking them down into a physical reality. And this is such a good read, I think, too, around this time of year, where people, whether you recognize Lent or Easter or have any, uh, you know, awareness of that in your life, um, it's a good conversation to have. The book sparks a good conversation. Do you think it would be helpful to people who maybe they don't believe in, quote, religion, mm-hmm. or maybe they're searching, or maybe they have questions? Or is this for somebody who's a, a more advanced, committed type believer? Is it for I everybody? hope it's not for advanced, because I'm not that advanced. <laughs> so it's like, a, if it's for advanced, I'm in big trouble. I, I want this book to be for what we call nominal Christians. People who are the C and E Christians, maybe, and thinking, well, maybe Christi- Christmas and Easter. Christmas and Easter. C&E. I'm sorry, I was C and E Christmas uh, Christians. Um, perhaps there's more to the world. You know, why do I have problems in the world? Why am I depressed all the time? Why do things not seem quite right? Why do when I achieve goals, am I not happy when I achieve those goals? Um, because I thought ten years ago that doing this would make me happy. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm doing this now, and I'm, I'm not happy. Why is that? It's because something else has become your fundamental trust. God is more of a concept to you than a reality. And a re- and God as a reality means you really have to know God, know about God, and have a relationship. And that's a different idea than knowing about God. Mm-hmm. We can know about God. You know that. We can know about God. But having a relationship is a whole different uh, scenario. Yeah. Um, and not to get too churchy, but, you know, I, I, I so often heard the pastor say it's a head knowledge versus a heart knowledge. Right. So right. intellectually, you can study anything. Absolutely. Know anything. Um, I know Jewish people who have doctorates in Christianity because mm-hmm. they understand the theology behind it. There is a leap of faith you must take in order to believe in anything, and that's scary for any of us because I think we do. We are wired. Our default wi- wiring is to take care of ourselves, to control our own lives, and to want to be the master of our own destiny in our universe. Well, that and that is exactly what the sort of the secular mindset is. You know, I should decide what's right and wrong for myself because that's sort of the individualist kind of society we live in. We don't live in a shame and honor society. We live in a society that says, no, you should decide what what is right and wrong for yourself. But then you say, okay, but is there something that somebody's doing that you think is wrong? To despite what they feel it is. Mm-hmm. And if you say yes, well, then you're basically admitting that there is some kind of objective reality. Mm-hmm. Or an absolute truth. Or an absolute truth yeah. that's outside of you or I. And I think that's a big big, a big leap of faith someone has to really take. Um, a lot of us will say, intellectually, people should have, decide what's right and wrong for themselves. But then when they're confronted with something that they don't believe in and have very strong feelings about it, then they want to say that's wrong. Well, why is it wrong if everyone decides what's right and wrong for themselves? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think, for me, I think any of those choices takes a leap of faith. Choosing to believe there's nothing else, yes. there's nothing bigger, there's nothing after we die and mm-hmm. leave this planet, uh, or believing there's a God. Wh- whatever choice you make, you are taking a leap of faith in some direction uh, and trusting that you're right. Well, that's uh, one of the uh, one, a great theologian said to me once, there is no neutral position when it comes to religion. And everybody is making an, uh, making an assumption. There is a presupposition that you're making. Either you're, the presupposition is there is no God, or the presupposition is there is a God. And I fully admit that my presupposition for this book is, okay, there is a God. Mm-hmm. And the next question is, okay, has that God revealed himself to us? And I say, yes. Okay. And the next question is, has that God revealed himself through the Judeo-Christian um, scriptures? Okay. And I'm going to make that assumption as well. I'm not trying to debate whether Christianity is true or not. I 
wrote you start this, from that premise. I, st- I start from that premise only because I see a lot of books come across my 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 desk challenging Christianity or trying to defend it um, or trying to say, oh, you know, um, you know, Paul didn't mean St. Paul didn't mean what he what he said mm-hmm. he thought he meant or anything that, you know, Jesus was a teacher of love or whatever. And I'm thinking, OK, those are that's a wonderful way to look at it. OK, but what about just looking at it from the standpoint that this is objectively true? Then what? How do you go from there? And I think that's the point where it really surprised me how well everything kind of fit into those three categories. I'm not a scientist, but I did interview a great deal of scientists. You did. And for people who want to have more of this conversation, they want to look at God in real life uh, and the impact of that and what it really means. It's a fascinating book. Again, Lauren Green's Lighthouse Faith, God as a Living Reality in a World Immersed in Fog. And we're glad you brought the lighthouse to Live in the Bream today. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks and thank you for us. bringing me to Live in the Listen, Bream. Listen, well, people are going to go out and Google our Miss America videos now. Oh, so my gosh. Go do that. We'll keep chatting. I'll talk to you next week. <laughs> Thanks. This has been Live in the Bream on Fox News Radio.